Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, just coming in under the wire and making sure we get to you another weekly installment of this program here on Saturday night. Uh, some good news this week. Uh, the gentleman, the hookup I have for uh, scanning prints, who was kind enough to scan the print of uh, A Star Shall Rise, which was what we uploaded uh, for Christmas on the Gila Films YouTube channel, the 1950s uh, telling of the Nativity uh, television episode. I'd kind of uh, fallen out of contact with that guy, unfortunately. Just got so busy as I made the transition uh, in careers. And uh, he actually reached out to me, and I was glad he did, just to remind me, hey, I know you have some other stuff we were talking about doing. And uh, shipped him out another print this week to scan. This isn't one that's uh, going to be up on the YouTube channel or anything because it's not public domain. It's a uh, print I have of the 1950s Yeti movie Man Beast, uh, which uh, was directed by Jerry Warren, one of my favorite uh, schlockmeisters of the 50s and 60s. And trying to just ascertain, this print might have some missing footage that wasn't isn't in the more commonly available versions. But uh, just glad that we kind of reconnected because we do have these other prints we've uh, gotten a hold of, uh, such as the Mohawk Carpet Special. And um, also, I, I don't know if I mentioned in a previous episode, I stopped at an estate sale in Amsterdam, and they had a whole bunch of uh, 8mm films. Some of them were commercial stuff like the old Castle films that you used to be able to buy back in the 40s and 50s, you know, like Popeye cartoons or Abbott Costello skits or whatever you might find. But they also had some home movies, and they were asking quite a bit of money for them. Um, so I was I couldn't just you know go in and swipe them all, but I did notice that one of them said Chamber of Commerce on it, and I was like, oh, maybe this is something from Amsterdam or from Montgomery County, which is the county that uh, Amsterdam is in, and so that's another thing I'd like to have scanned. Long story short, uh, I have reconnected with this uh, guy who's uh, really good about this because he, basically he scans the stuff and then he gets to keep a digital copy for himself. Um, and then he ships the print back to me and uh, shares that that transfer with me. And then I can use that for some of this uh, more locally oriented stuff to uh, upload that onto the YouTube channel. And also, we I, again, because I apparently have brain trauma and can't remember anything. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that. I also picked up another Christmas episode from the same th- from the same series, Family Theater, that we uh, took that Christmas episode from uh, prior. Uh, I found another Christmas episode uh, of that show, a print online, 60-millimeter print. And so uh, I'm hoping that he'll be down to scan that as well. So more of that will be coming uh, through the pipeline soon. And other tangentially, kind of two degrees of separation, Hilo Films news. Um, So last Frankenstein, of course, we were very uh, honored to have Robert Dix in our cast. And as we've talked about many times, veteran cult movie actor, um, whose father was Richard Dix, uh, the uh, popular leading man of the 1920s through 40s. And uh, big big new uh, title announcement uh, in, in the legacy of Richard Dix uh, was just dropped by Indicator, the, the boutique label Indicator. So Indicator had released uh, a series of box sets of film noir movies uh, made by Columbia Pictures, uh, appropriately titled the Columbia Noir sets. Columbia Noir volumes one through four were what they came out with first, and they were just a mixer of 40s and 50s film noirs made by that studio. 
Then they did Volume 5, which was uh, specifically Humphrey Bogart movies uh, that were made at uh, Columbia. And at that point, it sounded like uh, this is going to be the end of the line. Uh, there, you know, no one's come out and said it, but a lot of the labels that have tried to do business uh, with Sony, which is the owner of Columbia, the Columbia Library now, uh, they've kind of run into some problems. Um, so tr- historically, uh, Sony wasn't really willing to license out to a lot of labels. You know, they they licensed out to Criterion because who doesn't? No one says no to Criterion. And they licensed out to Mill Creek, which, of course, is a, you know, a budget label. Um, and their stipulation was that uh, if you wanted to license any of their product, you had to use the master they provided. So say you want to license a movie and it's owned by MGM. And they don't, and you want to put it out on Blu-ray, and they don't have a high-definition master of the film. Well, you could, you know, work something out with them to pay to create a new high-definition master. You know, send the send the film elements to a lab, have that scanned, and you you know work out the financial aspects of it in in your contract. You know, maybe you wouldn't pay them as much money up front because you're kind enough to uh, create this new new high-definition master, which they'll be able to use themselves down the road. But there were two studios that. Insisted on doing, I'm sorry, insisted on doing their own high definition uh, masters. So if you wanted to get something for them, uh, license the title that they had, and there was no high definition master of it yet, that's just too bad. You didn't matter if you wanted to pay them to create a new one, they weren't going to do it. They want to keep it all in house so they can kind of keep an eye on quality control. And those two studios were Fox and Sony. Now, Fox, of course, is now, since then, it's been bought by Disney and they really aren't licensing uh, much out anymore. So I don't know if. If that, if they ever do open up the gates again to to their vaults, um, that was a double, double. I think I just I mixed up metaphors there. But anyways, if they ever do allow people to license their titles again, I don't know if that policy will still stand or not. But Sony is still sticking to that. So, and that's why um, Mill Creek, uh, which again is you know came on the scene as a uh, you know a, a very much a, a budget company. They were known early on for just releasing boxes, sets of public domain titles, 50 horror movies in a set, 50 science fiction movies in a set. But then they kind of started, uh, you know, up their game when they started doing deals with some of the, uh, you know, bigger, bigger organizations. And they were able to take all these movies from Sony and just drop them on a disc, no extras, no bonus features for the most part early on. And, you know, just charge 10 bucks for it and use the master that Sony had. And, the only uh, boutique labels outside of the Little Creek Criterion that could really crack the the code and get make, make it happen with Sony was like um, uh, Twilight Time back in the day when they were when they were still bustling, and a lot of the other studios just they couldn't uh, you know they just couldn't uh, get uh, Sony to be willing to license to them you know and some some of some companies are more difficult uh, that way um, you know uh, Warner Brothers is notorious difficult to license from now again they've done stuff with criterion and they've done some stuff with shell factory uh because I, th- I believe there was someone at shell factory who kind of had an in with someone at warner brothers and that just worked out well um other companies like mgm uh is it's very open to letting you license their product but uh, Sony was one of the more difficult ones, and it seemed like they were finally starting to warm up. Um, Arrow was able to make a deal with them, Arrow Video, uh, Indicator, of course. Indicator was a company started by former Sony employees, so you know, right from the jump, they were putting out Sony product. And uh, more recently, Kino Lorber finally uh, was able to get a deal going with Sony. And so there was a lot of excitement that, okay, even if even if they're still sticking to their hole, we want to create the masters and you can't, you know, you have to use what we provide you. 
at least they're uh, allowing a greater amount of access to what they had. And and just to be clear, their their high definition masters, the quality of them is good. Uh, that's not really the the problem. It's just there's a lot. They have a lot, a lot of product in their in their archives that doesn't have that don't have high definition masters, and that companies, some of these boutique labels, would love to get a hold of these titles and even pay for the new uh, masters to be created. But it's just not an option. So, um, so everything looked like it was improving on the Sony front, and then then things started to get a little uh, wonky. Um, Indicator, they started to uh, put the brakes on their Sony output. They were you know, relying more on other studio deals. Um, kind of a sign of, of things falling apart was when they had licensed the film Ishtar, which is, of course, this the big budget, uh, infamously big budget box office failure from the 80s with Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, which in retrospect is, is generally considered uh, much more favorably now. And... Um, Indicator had licensed the movie, wanted to give it the full-blown treatment, and it really chronicled the whole history of the film. Um, and then basically Sony came back and would not approve any of the extras, and so they were left with either, you know, we're either going to have to release this bare bones or not at all, and they had already built up this reputation as a, as a boutique label that wouldn't put out um, editions with all the bells and whistles. So they were like, we're just going to drop the title and we'll switch out with something else. And then it wasn't long after that that it seemed like they weren't releasing any more Sony product. And they even said after the Volume 5 of their Columbia Film Noirs came out, the one with Humphrey Bogart, they said, this is probably it. Uh, we're probably not going to have any more in this series. And, and before you knew it, they started uh, releasing box sets of Universal Film Noir. Uh, Universal being another studio like MGM that's very, very willing to play ball with you and let you license their stuff. Meanwhile, Kina Lorber, uh, they came out strong with their initial Sony titles they were putting out, and everything looked really good. And then we started, you know, noticing that they were releasing um, some of the titles they were announcing from Sony had no bonus features, which is very unlike Kino Lorber now. And then uh, on the uh, Blu-ray.com uh, message boards and forums, the some of the insiders who work at Kino Lorber, who you know will anonymously post there, uh, you just mentioned that they were running into a lot of problems with the Sony deal. That they were having to switch out titles and. They probably did not, they, they wouldn't go into specifics, but they said it would be unlikely for them to do another deal with Sony anytime soon. And so it just seemed like, okay, this is, for whatever reason, this is just falling apart. I've also noticed that um, even down in Australia, the uh, Imprint Films label, which is a killer label, and they've released a lot of Sony product, uh, you know, more and more there's Sony titles that they've been putting out have no extras, no bonus features. And my I'm, my assumption is that this is coming from Sony, that either they're not allowing you to create new extras or they're being uh, so uh, so strict about what you can or can't do that it's making it difficult to even create new extras. And so things uh, look dim for a new Sony product coming out. Which And the, the wild thing about Sony is they, they will self-release stuff. Uh, so they've been doing this uh, series of box sets, the Columbia Classics box sets. And there'll be like six movies in each set. And they're in 4K and they have crazy extras. And they're really expensive box sets. Um, but they really do put a lot of incredible content on those. They also, every once in a while, just randomly drop the most out-of-left-field title on Blu-ray in their library. Like, they just randomly put out um, Rock Around the Clock, like, a couple months ago. Which, you know, it definitely has a cult following. It was, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets were in it. It was at the whole onset of the rock and roll uh, in film era. But still, 
just to randomly put that on Blu-ray, really no big press release, no extras. Um, it was just kind of weird. They would do that every so often, uh, you know, some random 30s mystery B-movie <laughs> or something like that. But glad that they're putting them out, not complaining, but it was just really kind of out of the field. So it was really surprising the other day that um, I got, you know, the email um, on their mailing list and their email about their upcoming uh, releases, and it was a new volume of Columbia Noir. And, uh, you know, they were very quick to tell the Columbia Noir is back. So they are releasing a volume six of Columbia Noir, and it is the complete, uh, all eight of the Whistler films. So if you're not familiar with the Whistler, allow me to uh, entertain you. So it started out as a radio show. I'm a big fan of old-time radio, as I've mentioned before in this podcast. And the Whistler ran, uh, had a pretty good healthy run, 1942 to 1955, very popular. And the Whistler was this kind of, uh, you know, anonymous character who narrated the proceedings. Um, and it was kind of like an anthology show. Think of it like the Twilight Zone but instead of Rod Serling as the host, there was this character called the Whistler. And it's very much in that vein of like the Twilight Zone, uh, you know, one step beyond. Um, or if you're if you're more familiar with radio, old time radio shows like Suspense, where it'd be like the the story at hand would be something very dark and, you know, involving a, a lead character who, uh, you know, fate was coming after them. They may have engaged in a criminal act or were going to be the victim of a criminal act. Um, it was kind of like film noir on radio. It was, uh, you know, downbeat and, um, you know, uh, a dark, uh, not trying to oversell the idea of it being dark. It was still within the constraints of, you know, 40s radio uh, material, but it was, like I said, it's basically film noir on the radio. And, and the Whistler, like I said, is just this character who kind of tells the tale at hand of of uh, uh, doom and despair and uh, uh, crime gone wrong. And so in the 40s, they decided to make this as a series of films. This was, this was a thing back in the day, you know, in the 30s and 40s, where studios would have film series. Uh, for example, MGM, they had the Andy Hardy films and the Dr. Kildare films. And Columbia, before this even, had the uh, Blondie movies. And over at Universal, they were making the Sherlock Holmes films with Basil Rathbone. And, you know, you'd have these film series where the movies would run between 60 and 75 minutes long and, you know, recurring uh you know, slate of actors playing these same characters. And, you know, they, they had the, um, the production values of a studio piece, but, you know, obviously at a lower budget, it was still like, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was still kind of like their more B material, but not, I'd say like B plus material, right? It wasn't like they were totally going like Z grade on this, but they were kind of, uh, able to benefit from the uh, assembly line nature of the, um, studios. And, uh, because the studios back in this time period also owned the theaters. Like this was, this was at a time when studios controlled not just production, but also distribution. This allowed them to uh, create their own B content for double features. Like, Hey, you know, we, uh, we own MGM owns these theaters and we're going to have like, you know, I don't know, Mrs. Miniver be the top film of a double feature or whatever big MGM movie they're making at the time. And then for the B film, it'll be an Andy Hardy movie and television in conjunction with the uh, the Supreme Court breaking up the the monopolization by the film studios of all these different aspects of of the business, which you know when the, when the Supreme Court did that, what the movie they said, you know, you have too much power. The film studios have too much power. You control production and distribution and all this. You have to you have to give up one of these things because you basically control everything. And so what they gave up was distribution. They gave up the control of the the movie theaters. And that happened right around the same time the television came on the scene. And so that kind of one, two punch basically led to the, uh, 
the dying out of the whole concept of these kind of film series. Um, obviously, we still have film series these days and franchises, but they're you know big budget affairs um, like James Bond or whatever that's been going on for years and years and years. And I think that the uh, the whole concept of the film series, um, the close the closest thing we we would see after that would probably be like TV movies, like series of TV movies, you know, like how they had the, the Perry Mason TV movies that ran for almost a decade throughout the 80s and 90s, or uh, the Columbo TV movies that after the main series had run in the 70s, they came back in the late 80s. And those kind of things were kind of more reminiscent, even though they were made for TV, they were kind of reminiscent of the old film series, B-series. So The Whistler uh, ran for eight movies over... Uh, out of Columbia, from 1944 to 1948. And these would, all but the last one, all but the, the final one in the series, would star Richard Dix, uh, Bob's dad, who, uh, in, you know, in, in the vein of the radio show, these would each each movie would be a completely different story. So Dix would be playing a completely different character, caught up in the, you know, some dark narrative. And... Uh, this would be his his final foray essentially into acting because uh, the the last of these films that he did, the seventh film in the series, uh, the 13th Hour was what it was titled, uh, ended up being his last film altogether. Uh, he had to uh, stop acting because of his health. His health was deteriorating and then he ended up dying two years later, 1949. And uh, they did make an eighth film, The Return of the Whistler, with uh, an actor named Michael Dwayne taking on the lead role, but uh, yeah, so these are uh, eight films in the series, and the other interesting thing about these films is that four of them, including the first one, was were directed by William Castle, who was a prolific B director, through uh, who really totally took on a, a, a new mantle in the late 50s when he became this legendary schlockmeister producer-director of horror films um, such as House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler and 13 Ghosts, which were not only fun films to watch on their own, but were also known for the promotional gimmicks that he incorporated into them, like for The Tingler, uh, wiring, uh, you know, electricity into to, uh, the the seats in uh, certain theaters so people would get a shock when the, when the titular Tingler appeared on screen. And he would, uh, you know, have a successful run of those kind of movies uh, for a good 15 years. Uh, you know, as he got into like the mid 60s, he started leaving the gimmicky aspects behind and he, but uh, continued to make uh, uh, some fun films. Um, also produced the 70s uh, anthology series Ghost Story, which that was hosted by Sebastian Cava and was the producer on Roman uh, Rosemary's Baby. But uh, this, so the, a lot of people look to the Whistler films and his involvement with them as kind of like the testing. Uh, grounds for uh, his involvement with horror later on. And uh, they're very well-regarded movies. I have only seen the first one, and that was a while ago, uh, which is titled Just Simply the Whistler, and starred Dix, and also Gloria Stewart was the leading lady in that, the old Rose from Titanic many years later. And uh, the great thing about these two coming out on Blu-ray in this box set uh, is that uh, in the U.S., these have only been released on DVD, and only seven of them have been released on DVD. The second film in the series, The Mark of the Whistler, which was also directed by William Castle, um, has never had any kind of U.S. Uh, physical media release, uh, the reason being believed to be because it's its story was uh, taken from something by Cornell Woolrich, who was a really famous uh, 
author whose works were adapted to many well-known film films noir such as Rear Window and The Window and uh, Night Has a Thousand Eyes. Those were all based on Cornell Woolrich stories. So it was believed that there was some kind of licensing issue preventing uh, a physical media release of this movie. So you couldn't even get the whole uh, franchise on DVD in the U.S., but now all eight of them will be on Blu-ray. It is a UK-only release. Indicator is a label that started out of the UK. They also have a US wing. But this is a UK-only release, which could mean that that situation still has not been sorted out with Mark of the Whistler in US territory. Or it could just mean that someone else is going to be putting it out. Uh, you know, I can see like Mill Creek doing that. But this is really exciting news. It's really great to see this this really important chapter in Richard Dix's career uh, finally get recognized in William Castle's. Um, I just love this kind of stuff. I love these kind of you know B uh, s- films that are kind of like borderline. They're they're like genre mashups between mystery and suspense and noir and horror. I love the Sherlock Holmes movies that Universal put out at this time, especially like the they did. So there were we'll get into this. I'm sure at some point we'll do a whole Sherlock Holmes run, but. You know, there were 14 Sherlock Holmes films with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. The first two were made at Fox in 1939, and then Universal picked up the series in 1942 for the last 12. And like, I enjoy them all, but the middle of that of that run of 14 films, um, there's like about six of them right in the middle that are very much really drilling down on the horror aspect and the suspense aspect, and they're just a ton of fun, really great movies. So really happy to see this this stuff coming to light in terms of film series it's actually interesting the um the blondie series which i mentioned earlier which was a very long-running series that film series ran from 1938 was the first movie all the way to 1950 28 movies and um it's a highly requested uh title for a physical media release and unfortunately that one's tied up um because the rights are the whole uh, issue of who controls the rights and who controls the elements, it's all muddled up because I believe, you know, Sony, I'm sure, I'm guessing, still has the film elements because Columbia Pictures made them. But the uh, creators of Blondie, and I'm not sure whether it's the actual uh, state of the actual writer who created Blondie or it's the comic, the company that published the comic strip. But one of those two, they have it, they have a controlling interest in those films. So they've never really gotten a, a home video release. What I'd love to see is um, Columbia also made another uh, film series, very much similar in tone and genre, right around the same time, and also based off a radio series called I Love a Mystery. Um, I Love a Mystery was a uh, a radio series where, like, it was not an anthology show. It was centered around this, I think it was two or three uh, characters who were, like, investigating, obviously, a mystery. And they would take a storyline and serialize it over like multiple episodes and then they start like a new storyline so it's kind of almost like what bbc does like doctor who where it'd be like a storyline and then episodes multiple episodes taking on a storyline and um it's a fun radio show and they brought that to the big screen sony at columbia did in the 1946 they released three films all that year i love a mystery the unknown and the devil's mask and uh that was it just the three but um I saw The Devil's Mask. It's a it's a lot of fun. It's just a really fun B film with element again mixing up elements of mystery and horror. So I uh, would love to see if uh, Indicator could somehow wrangle those ones out too. But really great news to see this happening. And I should know I'm actually just pulled up the product page for it now that Mark the Whistler, which is again the one that has not even been out on DVD in the U.S. That one is only in standard definition, unlike the other ones. 
So I guess it's possible that that could have played a part in it not being released in the U.S. too, but I, I doubt that because they they released all the other ones on DVD in the U.S. and you know obviously you don't need to have a high definition copy for DVD. But it is interesting that that one is only. You know what I bet? I wonder if the film. I wonder if the film is available to license in the U.S. in the U.K. I mean, because of. You know, whatever is preventing its release in the U.S. does not affect U.K. territories. But I wonder if Sony doesn't really want to play ball in terms of letting letting them access the elements for it. And so they just had to resort to a standard definition master. You know, in other words, uh, in the U.S., Sony's like, we can't put this out on... We can't do anything with this title because of something to do with the uh, the intellectual property rights, this Cornell Woolrich story. So we're not going to even bother putting this on the dock to restore it or do anything with it. Um, but in the UK, they this this is not a problem for them to release it. But they just had to because they can't because they can only accept whatever master Sony gives them. Sony's like, yeah, this is all we got. The only thing we've we've ever made of this film, struck from this film, is a standard definition copy because we can't ever release this film in the U.S. We've never bothered to do a high-definition restoration. We're not going to do one. And we don't allow other people to pay for us to do one. So if you, wanna, if you want this movie, yeah, you can put it out because it's the U.K. only, but you're going to have to take whatever we give you. And it's just a standard definition presentation. But still, hey, that's still better than nothing. And uh, still very excited, though, that this is... Uh, this is happening. All right. So turning over to obits, obituaries. Uh, really, only one to call out, but a, a very important one. Terry Levine. Terry Levine, age ninety, who was a very important uh, a part of a cult movie distribution, especially on the East Coast. Uh, born in England, but he came to the U.S. at a pretty young age and started up the company Aquarius Releasing, which uh, you know played a played a key part in the distribution of a lot of films we're all familiar with movies like um, a little a little something called Halloween you might have heard of that um, he also was uh, like a sub distributor for a lot of Roger Corman's content um, he also played a key part in the distribution of stuff like Alligator and Silent Night Deadly Night and Deep Throat uh, the uh, legendary adult film that grossed like ridiculous uh, amounts of box office cash um, at a time when, you know, just regular everyday run-of-the-mill people would go to a movie theater and watch porn. Um, He also produced some films um, like uh, the Isaac Hayes uh, concert film, The Black Moses of Soul. He did the movie Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. But what he is best remembered for, uh, apart from all that, is he's the guy, he took, uh, you know, a group of exploit. a handful of these exploitation films and totally rebranded them and got them their U.S. release. So he's the one who took Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, classic film The Beyond, retitled it Seven Doors of Death, released in the U.S. He took Umberto Lenzi's Cannibal Ferox, uh, retitled it Make Them Die Slowly, released in the U.S. And he's the one who took um, Zombie Holocaust and uh, really uh, kind of re-edited the film and, and messed around with it and released it in the U.S. as Dr. Butcher, M.D., and, um, yeah, just a really well-known, uh, uh, like I said, for his work in, in genre distribution. And 90 years old, so, hey, had a good run. And uh, was still active pretty recently. I know that Seven Films, which has released um, released the uh, Dr. Butcher MD slash uh, 
uh, Zombie Holocaust, they had interviewed him for their uh, recent uh, documentary on Bruce Lee exploitation films. Um, so it was very active up to, up even till the end, but a great run and an important person for us genre fans. All right. Uh, we wait no more. We move on to the movie of the week, a film I had not seen in 20 years probably from 1976, Richard Donner's The Omen. Yeah, I I had the box set. The so Screen Factory put out a box set of the Omen films. The which, if you're not familiar with the way the franchise works out, it was the Omen came out in 1976, followed by Damien Omen II in 1978, followed by The Final Conflict in 1981, followed by the TV movie Omen for the Awakening in 1991, and then the remake in 2006. Um, and Shout Factory, Screen Factory, had put out a box set of all the movies, and it was just sitting there sealed on my shelf. I had watched the first one, like I said, it was a couple decades back, and it was kind of a distracted viewing experience. I was watching with someone else, and it wasn't really the best way to watch that movie. Um, and I just really wanted to dig into it and really finally have a chance to sit down and really kind of ga- gauge how I felt about it. Um, you know, I remembered obviously key parts about it, having seen it, but I really didn't feel like it was the right way to get the the proper impression of the movie, and so sat down with it and, and finally checked it out. And so if you're not familiar with The Omen, because you don't ever watch movies, um, the premise is that it stars Gregory Peck as the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, uh, who's got a wife, played by Lee Remick, and a child named Damien, a son named Damien, who he is being warned is going to be the Antichrist. Um, Which, if you're haven't kept up on your book of Revelation from the Bible, uh, is basically, uh, you know, the uh, biblical equivalent to Bizarro of, of, of if, if you're uh, looking for some comic book uh, comparisons, you know, he's, he's, you know, the bad version of Jesus who's going to basically unite the world uh, under one evil rule. And this will... Uh, basically be something that happens before the return of Christ and, you know, total global spiritual warfare and all that kinds of stuff. And, uh, in, in the context of the, um, the mythology of the Omen, the movie, uh, he is the son of Satan. Um, this, the, whoever the Antichrist is, if he exists, he is the son of Satan. And so the film opens with, uh, you know, Peck rushing to the hospital in Rome, uh, having been informed that his wife has given birth, but that the child died. And uh, his wife does not know this yet uh, because she's still recuperating. And you know, he arrives at the hospital, and uh, it's a hospital run by the Catholic Church. And so a priest there suggests to him that you know this child has, because Peck is very despondent, he doesn't know how to tell his wife about this. She has, He's afraid it's going to devastate her and um, just do, you know, great emotional damage to her. She had really had great expectations about having a child. And so the as he's talking with this priest at the hospital about this, the priest informs him, well, that a child, coincidentally, had been born uh, whose mother died during childbirth and is essentially orphaned. And that Peck could just take this child, adopt it, and not even have to tell his wife, and she would never know the difference. It would be his son. And so, uh, you know, he goes forward with this 
and as time passes and the child becomes a toddler, uh, violent, horrible things happen to people around uh, the family, around this family, which is you know very highly situated within the uh, realms of power because of his position as an ambassador. And Peck is warned by, is approached and warned by a, an erratically behaving, seemingly crazed uh, priest played by uh, Patrick Troughton of Doctor Who fame that, you know, his child is is evil and is is a thing of evil and of course you know, peck dismisses this as the uh, ravings of a of a lunatic but at the same time that this is going on david warner uh the great wonderful british character actor he plays a a photojournalist who is being to investigate everything that's going on and uh you know the behaviors of the priest and what's been going on uh in peck circle with you know these horrible things happening and he uh starts uh, taking this uh, seriously and trying to uh, bring Peck over to realize uh, that this may actually be happening. There might be there might be more going on here than meets the eye, and there really could be uh, supernatural things at work. So the whole uh, subgenre of horror films about killer evil children is something that never quite appealed to me as much. It's something that I find more difficult to engage with. I think the issue for me is that a lot of the... Um, a lot of the pull around these kind of films is the idea that you're supposed to uh, have this contrast between the innocence of a child and the horror of what they're doing, and that's supposed to be you know, what's disturbing. And I think that I've always been very cognizant of the fact that children are capable of evil. You know, I would never really uh, view children as innocent as much as they are just unformed. And unfortunately, that's how we end up with children child soldiers over in uh, africa and the hitler youth and um you know children committing all kinds of crimes it's just you know uh it's unfortunate but it is what it is and i think that that's something i've always been so aware of that uh just that i never found um never found films about horror films centering around children as particularly like oh my god that's so freaky same thing with clowns <laughs> which it's kind of like for the same reason. Like I get the whole idea of clowns, the creepy clown, you know, it's, it's an adult basically dressed up in this garish makeup and it's interacting with kids and the whole context around that, how that could be freaky. Uh, and especially in the, like the post John Wayne Gacy era, but also like I, I get it, but it's also not something that's been like, Oh man, that's, that really is disturbing. I've never really bought into that. So, and that's, you know, there's obviously some subjectivity to these feelings, but that's definitely something that's uh, been in the background with me. And um, I think that that's why I think one of the one of the child based horror movies that I do like, I think, is uh, the Euro the Euro film from the 70s, Who Can Kill a Child? I thought that was one where they they did pull it off well, um, which it's it's kind of like uh, and I, this is a an original uh, take on that film. I think someone else was the one who pointed this out, but that movie, which is about a couple, uh, uh, you know, a guy and his pregnant, and his pregnant young lady, they are on this Island. Um, I believe they're vacationing. It's been a little while since I saw it. And then uh, the children there are starting to kill people. And they basically approached it like it was Hitchcock's the birds, but with kids instead of the birds, it just replaced kids for birds. And I, I like the way that that was pulled off, but, so, you know, I went into the Omen, you know, keeping, a, a, you know, a fresh mind, open mind about it, but there is still that part of me that's like, 
I can't just have this kid show up and, um, you know, just look innocent while evil's happening. And that's, that, that's what carries the weight of the film. But that's, that's not really what is going on in this movie. Um, and my impression of it that I took away after having to finally given it a good watch uh, and really sitting down with it is that I really did enjoy it. I think it is a really well done film. I think it's, and it's a film that gets better as it goes along. Um, I think that, you know, there was someone who commented recently. I it was actually, well, it was recent. It was recently that I listened to it. I, I am a big fan of the podcast, the rewatchables. So they did an episode uh, on this film and they commented how, uh, the director, this was directed by Richard Donner, uh, who is, uh, you know, this would be the, the first of uh, numerous huge movies he would do. Um, but how he kind of treated the child, this Damien, the son, the alleged Antichrist, kind of treated him like the shark in Jaws, where less is more, where, you, where it's, it's the whole film isn't just always focusing on him and centered around him. I th Now, I, I disagree with a little bit on that take that they had, because I think that in the first half of the film, well, I'm sorry, first third, maybe more of the film, that the film does have a, a lot of Damien in it, and it doesn't totally take that approach. Um, but I think the whole idea that they're getting at, which is that a lot of the strength in the film is is not in having not in making this it's a film about a child who could be evil and could be the center of great evil and around whom all these uh violent horrible things are happening in order to uh cement his rise to power but he is not the one necessarily it's not like the bad seed where he's the one necessarily going around uh you know uh killing people and and, and doing these horrible things i mean he does do some bad things in the film no denying that but it's not really you know it's not that same approach where he's he's the michael myers of the film or the you know what have you and i think that is definitely a strength of the film and i think as the movie progresses and it starts to shift attention away from uh, you know even away from so much on Damien as a character and onto, it becomes more and more about Peck having to, Gregory Peck as the father, having to come to the realization that this actually could be true, this idea that his son could be the Antichrist, that the horrible things happening around him and to his family are not just coincidental or cannot just be explained away, that this truly is a, you know, a supernatural uh, event happening. Um, I th that's really as that happens as that progresses throughout the film's narrative the film just gets better and better and better and better and at the center of that not not is not only at the center of that is the uh, narrative being so strong and the fact that they're they're basically approaching it like a mystery you know as as you know we as an audience know obviously that uh the damien is is what people warn, warn that he is, that he is going to be the Antichrist. I don't, you know, some people watch the movie and say, oh, one of the great things about it is how, like, they take the approach that you really don't know whether or not, you know, they try to they try to ground it in the sense that, uh, you know, maybe he really could be just a regular old kid and, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of this is just, uh, you know, superstition and fear. And, and one of the great things about it is how, you know, the film tries to, you know, balance the approach about whether or not Damien is... You know, try they they try to keep keep it non-judgmental and try to take this balanced approach where you could read everything as him being the antichrist, or you could just read it as a bunch of horrible coincidences. And I'm like, ah, no, the, they totally take the approach that he is 
the Antichrist in this film. Uh, that it's not it's not something that they're you know, even if they were to come out and claim that that was the approach they said, I would I would totally disagree with them. Like they totally they absolutely. Um, and not just from a marketing perspective, but from actual the actual film you're watching, you know that they're telling you that this is real, that this is happening, that this is the Antichrist. But Peck doesn't know that. And Lee Remick, as his wife slash the child's mother, or she thinks she's the mother, they don't know that this is happening. And they're really trying to come at the situation with a from a grounded uh, standpoint of like, okay, why is our... Why is her ch- child acting out? Why are these bad things happening around him? Um, and I think that as the as that aspect of the film uh, progresses, as Peck basically realizes there is something complex and mysterious going around him, which he needs to understand, and with which he kind of part- eventually partners with David Warner's character to understand. Uh, like I said, the film just becomes richer and more engrossing and and more frightening um because it's 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 interesting to see you know initially we're seeing all these actions happen at the beginning of the film we get the we get the setup you know the death of peck's natural child during uh you know when his wife goes into labor and them adopting damien well taking Damien to their home and of course obviously as far as Liam Remick's concerned, that's her real son, and Peck's uh, promotion to becoming ambassador of England, and Damien aging to like you know when he's just a, a young boy, and all that setup, and that that's kind of just you know, that's that's laying the groundwork obviously for what's to follow, and then we get we start to uh, get into the uh, you know kind of like I would say the second segment of the film where it's a lot of crazy <laughs> crazy bad things happening around uh, Damien and. Which is, you know, the the way the film kind of starts tipping off to the characters that, like, hey, there there could be there could be something more to your son than meets the eye. And then as we pass through that section of the film, then we get into what is the bulk of the movie. I would say, which is, like I said, it's it's Peck being drawn into this mystery and having to open his eyes to what's really going on, and they treat it almost. It's this wonderful mixture of mystery and horror and gothic dread, and and it's all done in such a way that the way that it unravels, the way that it unfolds, is so rich, you know, and it's so layered with you know Peck having to. Travel all over to different parts of the of the world to go to. He has to go back to Rome uh, to where the uh, his wife gave birth. He has to go to the uh, you know the Middle East to uh, you know look deeper into the the uh, mythology of of the Antichrist, and he has to uncover you know put together these bits and pieces to find out what the real truth is behind his his son and all the horrible things happening and you're like the way the film approaches it you're you're with peck on the journey not just not just in terms of like in a literal sense where as the viewer you're watching him go about from place to place but because but because the film has taken this uh really grounded approach to his character has really rooted the character his his character of uh, Richard Thorne the father I'm sorry Robert Thorne the father uh, as a very realistic uh, character they've really de- depicted him very well from a three-dimensional standpoint 
it's kind of like as he gets pulled into the mystery and he gets starts to to wonder if there's more going on here than seems we then become one with him and our viewpoint of the events kind of melt with his and it's kind of like we see everything unfolding through his eyes and it's like we're accompanying him on this journey uh, on this dark discovery that he's going through and a key part of the success of that aside from just the way the script is structured you know like i said it's it it gives you the preamble about how you know the basic foundation of what's going to happen you know child dies at birth we switch it with kid evil and then it and then it starts hitting those beats of you know things are getting crazy people are you know there's there's a rottweiler showing up at birthday parties and people committing suicide and uh you know just horrible things happening and Damien's freaking out and animals are freaking out around Damien. You know, it's, it's hitting all these points to let us know as an audience, let the audience know this, this kid is the Antichrist, while at the same time, these actions are also serving to make the parents wonder, what's going on with my kid? So, it's, again, it's, it's, it's step one with the script structure, lay the foundations, step two, you know, let the audience know what's going on, that this kid is evil, he is the Antichrist. And then step three, the rest of it, is Peck becoming aware of what's really happening. So definitely props to script, screenwriter David Seltzer and to producer Harv Bernhard, who also worked on the script, for building that structure out and setting it up like that. But also a huge part of the success of this approach is Peck. Um, it was brilliant casting to have him play the father. Um, and a lot of other actors were approached. You know, Roy Scheider was really considered for it. Charlton Heston was made a firm offer. William Holden, who ended up being in the second film, playing Peck's brother. Uh, Dick Van Dyke, actually, uh, talked about in an interview with Larry King, Larry King, how he was approached about it and turned it down because uh, of the, the violence. Um, and there was, those, are, those are all, of course, great actors. And I think there's a lot of a lot of potential there to a lot of it would be interesting to see their interpretations. Um, I think it would have been really fun to see Heston in that role. Uh, you know, when you think about the kind of like the dark genre films he was doing at that time, the downbeat ones like Soylent Green and the Omega Man. But by and far, Peck was 200% the right choice for this. Um, he, and it's not just because. I think I think it would be easy to say, well, you know, because he plays the definitive dad in To Kill a Mockingbird, and now he's, you know, playing the father with the evil child instead of in To Kill a Mockingbird, where he has he's you know, he, in To Kill a Mockingbird, he's the single father raising two kids and helping them become enter into uh, you know their teenage and adult years with uh, a, a firm sense of integrity and and, and morality, and uh, the omen is flipping that around where it's. You know, there's nothing you can do to prevent the fact that your child is evil. I mean, that that's kind of like, that's true, but it's really what Peck brings to it isn't just that uh, contrast between his image, uh, his known image as an actor and the proceedings of the film. It's like I said earlier, it's how grounded he makes his character. His performance in this film, it's one of my favorite Peck performances because he brings such restrained nuance to his performance, to his reactions, to what's going on in his world around him. All these bizarre, violent things are happening. And 
because he's not someone who's you know he's not in on the script obviously he's he's a character within the real world of this movie but he's not someone who's in on the fact that his son is the antichrist he reacts in a very realistic way you know you know some of these violent things are happening they're just coincidence some of these violent things are are that are happening these strange bizarre things are happening they're just you know, uh, you know they're just unexplicable but he doesn't he doesn't react within the film like a character who's seen a bunch of horror movies and, and you know and 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 is looking for uh, something bizarre around every corner he reacts like exactly like a father uh, and a husband would react you know concern uh, concern for the safety of his family uh, concern for what might happen in the future um, while at the same time the pragmatism of someone who also has to carry on their position of great responsibility as this you know very uh very high-ranking political figure as we as we watch the film and we see the lee remix character the wife the mother as we see her start to become worn down by all that's happening we again we just see you know peck's character respond with such a realist such realistic tones of of uh warmth towards her and concern for her her well-being uh, concerns for her, uh, you know, mental and emotional health. I mean, just every every choice he makes um, in body language, in in delivering his lines, it's just all about making it. It all serves to make his character, and by extension of that, the situation seem two hundred percent realistic. And that's the anchor. That's that's the weight that holds the film down. And I don't mean down in a bad way. I mean down in a good way. It's what keeps the film, which this would still be very entertaining, don't get me wrong, but it would be easy for this film to go off into almost like comic book territory of, you know, when you think of all the bizarre things that happen in this film, uh, you know, there are some very famous death scenes in this movie, so I don't think it's really spoilers, but when you think about something, some of the death scenes in this movie, the famous decapitation and the famous impaling and the suicide, um, and just the whole fact that the film is dealing with stuff that to a non-religious person might seem insane, like the whole idea of an antichrist and of you know Satan having a child. I mean, these are really outlandish ideas to the layperson. It'd be very easy for this film to kind of go off the rails and become almost comic booky or ridiculous. But Peck by by the power of his performance, and, it's, and I'm not, you know, there's obviously credit needs to go to Donner and to Seltzer and others involved in the film, but really it's Peck at the center who creates this character that is so realistic and so grounded and so believable that it really it really holds the whole film down to a a, a level of reality and of of believability. And so then as the narrative starts to progress and Peck becomes more and more aware of what's truly happening, we who are attached to that grounded viewpoint he has, we who are seeing the film's events through his eyes, we then start to feel that same dread rise up. And we still, that same apprehension, that same realization that, of what really is happening. And we also start, the, the film has such a great a great tone of of hopelessness about it that grows as the film progresses because 
first off, we're, we're just seeing character after character who is closely associated with Damien uh, dying horrible deaths. So, um, you know, uh, we're getting to the point as these characters are being whittled off where we know we're getting closer and closer to the characters we uh, identify and care about the most in the film. We know that if this prophecy of Damien is true and uh, that this this does not forebode well for the rest of the characters in the movie, for Peck or anyone else. And we also know as, a, as an audience member that we're watching a horror movie made at, during a time when uh, in the 70s when films weren't afraid to have, you know, these kind of really dark, dark endings, dark endings and hopeless endings. All that works together to, as, as the film progresses, to really build up this great, great sense of despair, which is enjoyable. It's enjoyable despair in this, because that's what you want. Like, it's, it's, it's what you want to take away from viewing this film. It's not. It's not an MGM musical. I don't. I don't need to watch this movie. I know some people are like, oh, I want to watch a movie to be entertained. Well, it is entertaining, but it's also like it's a movie that if it can't make me feel, um, you know, uh, like the world sucks and nothing is going to go right by the end of it, then, uh, then it's probably not working. It's probably not doing what it should do. It's not. It's not fulfilling its its mission statement. And right right to the end uh you know that whole i call like i said earlier I, you know i divide the film into three sections but they're not sections which are divided by act structures you know that like i said the setup of the film where it's just introducing us to the characters and and setting up the whole scenario of damien's you know adoption and his initial few years that's kind of like that's just part of the first act if you're looking at it for an act structure it's probably like the first 15 minutes 20 minutes and then you uh, you know, and that's good. It's, 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 you know, it, it moves quickly. It gets through what it needs to. It doesn't really spend any unnecessary time on anything. It, it hits all the right points about just showing, you know, Damien, you know, aging through those first few years and Peck's, you know, rising up in his position with the government. Then it goes to that, like I said, that second section where it's really about kind of showing the incidents, the initial incidents in the narrative that make one wonder if they tell the audience that Damien's evil, but make the characters of Peck and Rebecca wonder what's going on. It's, it's the famous birthday party scene, which everyone, you know, whoever watched this movie is familiar with, uh, you know, the famous suicide in it. It's, you know, Damien freaking out when he gets driven to a church and it's, uh, you know, Damien being around animals that freak out. It's, it's that second section of the film, which I would say is kind of from an act structure. It's kind of, it's basically the end of the first act and the beginning of the second act. And it's it's actually probably the part of the film that I think is the least effective because we I think that Damien's character isn't it's it's the character of Damien this child of Damien is not a compelling character in and of itself. And that's the part of the film that focuses the most on him. Like in like in that beginning section, it's just you know hitting all the bullet points and the the really meaty part that I've been referring to as Peck is drawn into the mystery of the surroundings. You're not really with Damien that much in the film. In that part of the film, it's really with just Gregory Peck and David Warner and somewhat Lee Remick. And that, but that second section I referred to, which is probably like the twenty minute mark. I don't maybe maybe to like the fifty minute mark. I I, I could be totally wrong about that, but. That that's that to me is where I think the film lags just a little bit because you know, Damien he's just 
he's just a child, like a blank child. It's not like there's anything we we know about him in terms of you know what makes him tick, what his interests are. Um, and obviously, he's just a child. He's very young, so you know it's not like he has this uh, you know, deep thoughts to share with us. It's this deep story to tell. But he's really almost kind of like uh, you know, almost like an automaton as far as as we're concerned as a viewer. And some people might respond to those, those comments and be like, "Well." In a way that kind of makes sense that he's kind of like just there. He's he he's a, a a character who's you know hollow and shallow and just there as as the 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 events un, un, unfold because the whole idea of the Antichrist in the movie is that it is like some non-human being who just is basically the spawn of Satan and is just there to you know bring about the smash evil plan. But and I I can see that that point of view. I can understand that argument. But for me, it's even though this was kind of this, the only by no means ripping off any uh, you know any classic horror films that preceded it. Even though we did have killer kid movies before this, like Village of the Damned and The Bad Seed, at the same time, it just feels kind of almost by the numbers that 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 section of just showing off. Once you get past that birthday party scene with the famous suicide, and it gets into like you know Damien freaking out as they go to a church, and Damien going to the zoo with his mom, and all the animals are acting up, it seems like kind of almost by the numbers. Like I don't want to say it is by the numbers because I I don't believe that they were just phoning those sections in, um, and, and you know partly it's, you know we've seen this kind of thing in a lot of films since then, but it is the part of the film which just feels the most mechanical, and it's just about like hitting these certain we, we've got to show. It's like we've got to show uh, in this story, we've, we've got to have certain things happen to kind of remind the audience that this kid really is evil and then to set up for the parents that they have a reason to be concerned about him. But it just feels like it's almost paint by numbers. Again, I don't think it is paint by numbers because, I again, I think they were really trying to craft something there. They were really trying to... to um, you know, work, really make those moments work. Um, but at the same time, as a viewer, I don't find those parts terribly compelling. Um, and it's really as we move past that and get into, you know, like I said, the whole journey Peck takes that where the film just accelerates into, uh, truly great terror territory. Um, and just becomes really, uh, just such a, a strong viewing experience, um, it's such a great effect of horror film and reaching, I think it's great. Like I said, I think it's great right up to the end of the film, but like, I think the highlight, uh, without again, going to spoiler territory, if you are someone who hasn't seen this movie, um, is, uh, you know, a scene with David Warner and Gregory Peck as they, as they, again, as they try to uncover this mystery about Damien, which finds them in a, a, an Etruscan cemetery, um, which I'm 99.99% sure was shot on a set, but it's just, Great, great, wonderfully creepy, gothic horror um, mixed with supernatural horror. Uh, and it's just a wonderful, the whole, that whole section is wonderful. I love that part. So, yeah, my takeaway of the film, if I, if I had to boil it down, is that, like, yeah, it truly is a, 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 a very good horror movie. Uh, great atmosphere, great tone. Uh, and again, like I said, one, one of the truly great horror movie performances given by Peck in the movie. Um, not, not flawless film, I think, but a film that does get better as it goes along, which I'd rather, in some ways, 
I would rather have this film have those kind of stumbling moments earlier in the movie and kind of get those out of the way and then just become this, you know, wonderfully increasingly better viewing experience as it goes along than the opposite, you know, to have it be, you know, great for like the first 75% and then go off the rails at the end. I, 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 I prefer the way it worked out. One other criticism I do kind of have about the film is, um, is Lee Remick, not her performance, uh, you know, love me some Lee Remick, but her character is kind of not that really well developed as the uh, wife slash mother. I just felt like a lot of her character is telegraphed to us. Like we're, we're basically told that she's, uh, you know, a loving mother and really cares about Damien and is a wonderful wife. And yeah, the film, the film uses a lot of shorthand to communicate to us the important points about the mother, about Lee Remick's character without allowing us ever to really kind of get inside her mind and really kind of get behind her viewpoint, the way we do pecs. Um, and some of that is that, I mean, you look at the movie, it's, it's just under two hours and it really doesn't waste a lot of time there's not like there's a lot they could trim out um to give more time to Remick's character um so that might have been kind of what they as filmmakers were wrestling with was you know uh, how to how to kind of give her, how do we give her that same kind of three-dimensionality that we did to peck without making this film you know even longer i think there was a way to do it um and i don't think i you know i, I don't think that they totally really sold me on on her character as being as well fleshed out as Pex. She just seems more like a symbol. Um, she seems uh, almost, her character seems more like a stand-in of like, you know, classic good mother slash good wife. Classic loving mother, caring mother slash loyal, wonderful wife. Um, and she's you know, given some actions and some dialogue to reinforce this. But again, the script never gives us the time to really get behind how she is viewing the proceedings in a, in a way that really makes us attached to her character and uh, kind of be one with her character's apprehension the way we do with Peck. And, that's, and again, that's not a, a hit on Remick. It's... It's it's a flaw within the film, and and it's it's uh, I guess it's overall end product, its structure, and what they decided to go with at the end of the day. But again, still, it's a, you know, it's a very good movie, and I, that that's something that definitely stood out to me, though. Like I said, the Richard Donner directed this. Up to this point, I mean, he had done some feature films before this, but nothing really uh, that had really been too noteworthy for him. I think the biggest movie he directed before this was the the spy comedy uh, Salt and Pepper with Peter Lawford and Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, but he had done a lot of TV work and a lot of highly respected TV work. He had done the uh, the famous Twilight Zone episode with William Shatner, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He had done the acclaimed uh, TV movie uh, Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, which starred Linda Blair, coincidentally, of The Exorcist fame. But uh, this is the film... Uh, that would uh, you know, put him put him to the top. The movie would become a, a huge hit. It was made on a budget of just under $3 million and ended up grossing 
close to 61. And this is, remember, this is 1976 money. <laughs> so it was huge, a huge hit. And of course, right after this, Donner did Superman. And then it was off to the Goonies and Lethal Weapon movies and just on and on. A great, great career that he had. Um, interesting to note, too, it's the only film that uh, ever won an Oscar for Jerry Goldsmith the iconic legendary composer who he took on the best music score for this uh best music Oscar for this film and also was nominated for best song for Ave Satani but um it's just kind of crazy like that, that there are certain musicians like this Elmer Bernstein's another one who had an incredible filmography of, of film scores that he had done movies like um The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape and uh, The Shootist and only won one Oscar in his whole career. Again, we, we've talked about this before with Oscars. It depends on the year, depends on the politics, but it's just kind of crazy to think about uh, these people who, because um, it's different than like actors, right? Like there are, I think if, because of the nature of their involvement in terms of like time commitment and uh, just the way their their process works, a, f a composer could work on more films and therefore have more uh, iconic works, perhaps, than an actor or actress could. Um, you know, again, just by virtue of the fact that you know, the production of a film can take so much longer than the post-production. Um, you know, if you're uh, if you're um, shooting films that take, especially epic films, that might take four, five, six, eight months to shoot. Um, that might be your only film for the year as a performer and might be the only film for two years if you need time to, to just take it easy after that versus a, uh, a composer who can um, well, obviously needs time to, to work their craft, but whose who's average uh, time commitment is much less than that and can move on to other projects. So when you think of, you know, certain performers only who have this crazy uh, bodies of film work, but might only have won one or two Oscars. Um, that's a little more understandable than a composer who has just a ridiculous filmography <laughs> and such a long career as Goldsmith does, and and then only takes home one one of the statues. Um, and it's also, like I, I I definitely think you know his work is to be commended on this film, but I don't think it's like his best score. Um, I love Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, he is. Uh, his scores always have something just off center about them in terms of like, just, they, they just have a different sound. They don't, they almost sound like you're dealing with someone who's just slightly avant-garde in his approach and who's very, his work always sounds like contemporary. He never sounds like his work doesn't sound dated. It never feels like you're you're listening to someone who won't grow or change or mature as an artist. It always feels ahead of its time, and it's interesting because so even on films that he worked on, that the films themselves aren't necessarily super high regarded. His work is really strong. I remember like watching *Hour of the Gun*, which uh, is a a telling of the gun the shootout at the O.K. Corral, the Wyatt Earp story. Um, John Sturgis directed it. He had directed a movie called *Gunfight at the O.K. Corral* in the fifties. And Hour of the Gun was came out about 10 years later in the late 60s, and it was kind of his follow-up to that with a different cast. And, you know, it's a decent movie, but it definitely did not land with the same kind of uh, effect as Gunfight had. But 
you know, I just remember watching that and just how much Goldsmith's score in that movie stood out. Or Tora, 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 which is the uh, film about uh, Pearl Harbor that came out in 1970 at Fox. It was a big passion project of Daryl Zanuck before he was finally kicked out of the studio. And it kind of really had like a lukewarm response from the critics. I don't think it really did well at the box office at all. And it's, it's considered a decent film. It's, its reputation objectively is kind of as like, you know, it's fine. It's good. You know, not, not, not a classic, but it's good. But Goldsmith's score in that movie is really terrific. Just like the opening credits in, um, it's it's definitely the highlight of that film, and uh, again, just looking at his filmography, I've got the old IMDb pulled up right here, just so I can kind of get a better sense of it. But you're just this is just like in chronological order. Some of the movies he scored, uh, we got Lilies of the Field, uh, Seven Days in May. Um, and I also should point out that he uh, you know did some really iconic uh, music for uh, the Twilight Zone. You know when he was when he was doing more TV stuff, he did the Sand Pebbles, which was uh, again that's another terrific score he did. That's that really stands out. A Planet of the Apes, the original with uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, he did Patton. Uh, he did uh, Wild Rovers, uh, Papillon, Chinatown, Logan's Run, uh, Coma, The Boys from Brazil, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, uh, Hoosiers. Uh, first Blood, the first of the, the Rambo movies. Poltergeist, uh, Basic Instinct, Total Recall, L.A. Confidential, Air Force One. I mean, just an insane career. I guess that's all I got to really say. I mean, Oscars are going to ask it, right? But just uh, what a crazy career that guy had. And, uh, again, incredible, incredible composer. I also want to give uh, props out to my man, David Warner. Uh, again, another really... Uh, one of those... 300% reliable character actors. Uh, also had some lead roles, obviously, throughout his career. Um, but, uh, you know, it just goes without saying, just a, a wonderful performance he gives us. The the uh, photojournalist kind of going on this journey with Peck. Um, his hairdo kind of leaves a little bit to desire. I don't think anyone can really easily pull off that cousin it with a flap cut out in front look. Uh, but, uh, you know, I love Warner. I love his his voice, and again, again too, is that he is someone who knows how to um, bring out the right moments of underplaying and being reserved. He know these are actors like he and Peck know when less is more, and it's again so key to making a a film like this, um, a horror film with. Uh, such ideas that could be outlandish and moments that could just be over the top ends up being horrifyingly effective is having people in your cast like like these pros. So yeah, The Omen, 1976. Good stuff. And now I, I was kind of, I've never seen the sequels. And I don't know that I feel compelled to watch them all necessarily. That TV movie from the early 90s and the remake. Um, those might have to wait a while. But I definitely am highly intrigued to watch the second one. Heard a lot of good things about it. Um, I'm a huge fan of William Holden. And also it has Lee Grant in it, who's like, you know, I've got a major crush on her. Love her. Um, and I guess they are, uh, I know I had heard about this a while ago and totally forgot about it. They've, they've made a prequel movie called The First Omen, which is coming out later this year and kind of deals with the events that lead up to the introduction, uh, the beginning of the of this original 1976 movie. Which sounds like it would actually be a really great idea for a film. I watched the trailer though; it didn't look that good. But you can't, you know, don't judge a film by its trailer necessarily. But we'll see. We'll see what happens when that comes out. Um, but yeah, The Omen, nineteen seventy six, recommended. Hashtag recommended. 
And that will be it for this week's wondrous installment of Carver City Cinema. Thank you for tuning in. Please continue to give us your support by leaving us some lovely reviews wherever you're uh, partaking of us, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and just continue to uh, like uh, us on uh, Facebook and follow our posts there. Um, I know it's been a long time since I sent out a Gila Films newsletter. I did send one out this past week. So if you haven't signed up for that mailing list, just head over to the website and uh, partake in that. All right, and I hope everyone has a great week. We'll see you later. Thank you.